Hi, I'm Robin Black, and this is Robin Thinks Deconstructing Books That Wrecked Us. As children, we are taught to listen to adults and other authorities. But adults teach us very different things, and we end up trying to operate on very different messages. The older we get, the more those conflicting messages begin piling up until we no longer know what is right or true. Deconstruction is the picking apart of these various messages to understand which ones work for us and which ones don't. In this podcast, I will deconstruct some of the most popular books in Christianity to determine which ones have harmful messages and what those messages are, so you can decide for yourself which ones are worth keeping and which can be thrown away. Okay, so today I want to talk about spiritual abuse. What is it? Where does it come from? How do we spot it? How do we recognize it? Um, And one of the things that I want to sort of preface this with at the beginning is that there are a lot of books written on spiritual abuse. Okay. And what's the reason for this and what's happening is that First of all, it's kind of a fairly new concept, the idea of spiritual abuse. And as a result, there's a lot of study into it. We're still really answering the question, what is it? What does it mean? What does it look like? And people tend to explore it from different perspectives perspectives and different lenses. And this is what's really important is because it doesn't necessarily look exactly the same to everyone. And it's like I talked about last week. It's, it's like a tree, right? Some people might explore the leaves and other people might explore the branches and other people uh, might take a look at the trunk, like what supports it. Um, other people look at the root system, the, the part that you can't actually see, the part that's not visible. Other people might look at the seed. And this is what I want to talk about today is what is, what is the seed? What is the smallest common denominator of spiritual abuse where does it come from what does it look like and just because I'm going to talk about the seed and other people have written a lot of books there are a lot of books about spiritual abuse and that should tell us something is that it's a very complex problem and because I'm going to look at the seed and I'm going to look at the smallest common denominator it doesn't mean that the people that have written about systemic abuse or institutional abuse or what it looks like on um, a large scale, it doesn't mean that we're disagreeing or that we're in disagreement with each other. We're talking, in in some ways, we're talking about two very different things. Uh, Where it starts and then what it looks like 10, 15 years down the road after it's been growing for a while are two kind of very different things. But yet they're very interconnected and in another way they're the same thing and so another thing to keep in mind is that this is my personal definition of spiritual abuse or at least the root of spiritual abuse the the one thing that sort of ties it all together and ultimately at the end of the day and I've said this many times and I will keep saying it that's literally all we have we all have an opinion but Hopefully, we form and we shape our opinions based on a lot of research and a lot of study. And I've spent most of my life in very spiritually abusive environments. The big one being, I was a missionary for 10 years in a Christian missions organization. I worked 70 
plus. I worked in excess of 70 hours a week, every week for between 20 to $60 a week. And what's most important about that is I had zero control over my own life. Um, Somebody else was responsible for telling me what time I needed to be up in the morning, what time I was allowed to go to bed at night from the, from pretty much the minute that I woke up until the minute I went to bed, my whole entire life was essentially under someone else's control. And so the big problem is, and this is what will happen in a lot of churches, it's happening more and more often in even mainstream churches where the lines between are you a church or are you a business? Are you a ministry or are you a business? Those lines are getting very, very sketchy. Um, so what happened in this organization, obviously, is that when it came to time to work, I'm an employee, but when it came time to get paid, I'm a volunteer. So I'm working 70 hours a week for $20 a week. That is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly abusive. Like I can't even begin to tell you how abusive that is. Um, and, but, and I lived that, that was my life for 10 years, but even before that, the abuse kind of goes way back because the fact that I did it was really just the culmination of growing up in religious environments that taught me that my life doesn't belong to myself. That my life, um, it either, you know, I have to get married, either I have to get married and have babies, but if I'm not going to get married and have babies, and basically my life belongs to the you know, quote unquote church, which is really just, um, wh- whoever the leader of whatever Christian organization I happen to give my life to basically. In fact, in this organization, I had a lifetime covenant. Like the organization was called covenant players. They're technically still around. They're very small. There's only a handful of them left, uh, but they're out there. Um, and so it was called Covenant Players. And, and the reason for that is because when, when you joined, you literally made a covenant between, theoretically, it's between yourself and God and technically the organization. But what I found out 10 years in is that you're viewed as having a covenant with the organization, but the organization clearly doesn't have a covenant to you. One of the reasons that this is true is because We did two tours every year of 18 weeks. So we spent 36 weeks of the year out on the road getting paid $20 a week. Then we also had a mandatory eight-week training in California that we had to pay for. So that $20 a week that I was getting, somehow we still had to come up with the money to support ourselves over the summer to attend a mandatory eight-week training. And... The point that they kept reiterating about this is that this this isn't us telling you to do this. This is God's will. This is what God wants from you. This is what God is calling you to do or requiring you to do. So of course the unspoken message is it's it's not it's it's God's will that we get to tell you what to do with every minute of your day. And what started to happen is that I started feeling 
something that I would call God inside of me. There was something inside of me that would say, you need to go here or you need to do this. And I would call the leadership and I would say, I think I need to go here. Or I think I need to do this. And they'd be like, no, you can't do that. We're not giving you permission. We're not authorizing you to do that. And so that, that started to really raise this question, who am I actually supposed to be listening to? Am I really supposed to be listening to you or am I supposed to be listening to God? Am I supposed to be listening to the voice inside of me that I feel sort of leading and guiding me or am I supposed to be listening to your voice? And their answer unequivocally was, you listen to us because God gave us authority. And what happened was, another reason I really started to question this is, the organization was founded by a man named Charles Tanner. And I think I'd been there about three years and he had a stroke. And so he was incapacitated and incapable of leading the organization. And so his daughter came back from Europe. She'd been um, leading the, um, we called it a campus. We had five campuses. And so she had been leading the European campus. So she came back and took over the organization. And so the question that raised was, um, she wasn't appointed by God. She wasn't voted in. She wasn't, there was no sort of communal agreement. She was literally handed the organization by her father. So that raises the question, where is God in all of that? Like, how do you claim that it's God's will that you are the leader and therefore it's God's will that we all have to listen to you when you were given your position of authority by your father. And so this is, that, that was the, the start or the beginning of my starting to ask these questions. Like, who says that a pastor has God-given authority. I mean, pastors, of course, will always tell you that pastors have God-given authority. Of course, they're going to tell you that. Of course, they're going to tell you that whatever they're telling you is coming from God. But is it? And that's also part of the problem. And this is part of the abusive nature of so many churches is that pastors will tell you that they have God-given authority They'll also tell you that it's bad or wrong to question God. And even though they won't always come out and say it, the message that they tend to overwhelmingly send is that if you question them, that's the same as questioning God. But what the Bible tells us again and again, the, the Bible is a very long history of man questioning God and God answering. And so when I started reading the Bible for myself, when I walked away from churches and I stopped listening to men and I stopped listening to all the things that I'd been told my entire life and I started reading the Bible for myself and I started praying and I started kind of seeking God for myself, I came up with a very different picture. I came up with a picture of God that is absolutely 100% perfectly okay with being questioned. In fact, I believe that God invites our questions. I think that God wants us to ask questions. Um, the Bible has all kinds of like weird inconsistencies in it. 
And that's, I think that's the point is that we need to struggle with these inconsistencies. We need to actually ask the question, wait a minute, over here it says this, but then over here it says this, like how does that work? And what too many Christian leaders will tell you is that you're just simply not allowed to ask those questions. They'll say, look, the Bible is perfect. We don't question it. You just accept it. You accept both of those things as being equally true. Well, psychology will tell us that is what is called cognitive dissonance. And so what starts to happen is that eventually almost all blind obedience will lead to cognitive dissonance because no one's perfect. And then the other problem is you also get situations in which you may go to different churches and one pastor will say one thing and then another pastor will say another thing and yet they both claim to speak for God. And so which one are you supposed to listen to? And this is one of the, you know, this is the big problem. And so to me, the root of spiritual abuse, and I got a lot of, I had a big sort of uh, Twitter argument erupt recently because I brought this up on Twitter and I pretty much had a mass exodus of Christians following me on Twitter because they didn't agree with this. Um, But to me, the root essence of spiritual abuse is any time you try to give your opinion more weight or more authority by invoking the name of Jesus. In other words, you're saying, it's not me saying this, this is God saying this, or this is Jesus saying this. This isn't just my will, this is God's will, okay? I spent 10 years of my life working 70 hours a week in excess of 70 hours a week because I spent my life having people tell me that was God's will. Okay. That, so, so that's the, so the outcome of spiritual abuse is that I spent 10 years having zero control over my life because I had prior to that time, I had spent my life being told that other people are meant to have spiritual authority over my life. I'm not allowed to be in control of my life. Someone else has to be in control of my life. That is spiritual abuse. And that, and ultimately, that is what it all boils down to. And this is exactly why people do that. Because it gives them more power and more control. Um, the, I think it's the third commandment is, it's usually translated as, you know, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord, your God in vain. Um, but I think it's the NRSV and it, and it talks about not misusing the name of God. And I think this is exactly what it's talking about. I believe that the third commandment is about not using God's name to give yourself or your opinion 
more weight or more authority than you were meant to have. So here's, here's the conflict. Here's what happens. I have an opinion. You have an opinion. We all have an opinion. Everyone has an opinion, right? And the problem is that if I express an opinion and you express an opinion and we're equal, then neither one of us actually has the authority to say that our opinion is right, okay? It's all about being right. So what we do is we say, well, this isn't just my opinion. This is God's opinion, okay? And I also want to talk about there's a difference between literally quoting a scripture, okay? We all have a Bible we all have equal access to it. There are certain things that Jesus actually said. So if I said, um, Jesus said, him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, that's valid. That is literally not my opinion. That is what Jesus is saying. But, but here's what's interesting. It's very hard to use the words of Jesus to support your opinion because when you actually start when you really read the words of Jesus, this is why he talks so often in parables. Because unlike man, Jesus almost never gave concrete or specific rules. He didn't really say, this is good, this is bad, do this, don't do that. He did say, love your neighbor. Right. And then somebody said, well, what does it mean to love my neighbor? And then he told a parable. He told a story. He gave an example of what it looks like. OK, um, he here's an example of this. In the Old Testament, God said, work six days, take a day off. OK, work six days, take a day of rest. That's my gift to you. Six days, do work. One day, don't do work. That was God's command. That's the whole thing. Right. And then what did man do? Man had to come in and man had to decide, well, what does it mean to rest? Why did man have to decide what it meant to rest? Why couldn't everybody just figure out for themselves? Okay, I, I spent six days working today. This is what I want to do. I want to go do this. I want to go do that. That's what it means to me to rest. So I'm going to do that. Okay, that's not good enough for man. Man had to come up. There's some 300 rules. I think they're called mitzvah. There's 300 mitzvah. I think that's what they're called. Um, and, and today there's like 600 or 700 because uh, several thousand years ago, man put himself in charge of deciding what it means to rest. And they came up with like 300 rules, like no sewing, no cooking, no picking, no, you know, uh, you know, what are the different types of work? Um, so let's just say that I find it relaxing to sew. Maybe while I'm sewing, it, it allows my mind to water. It keeps my hands busy, basically. Um, so let's say I like to do that. Well, no, that's not allowed because some men got together and decided that that's work. See, this is religion. Religion is men deciding what you are and are not allowed to do. God said, work six days, then rest. He, left, he pretty much left it up to people to figure out for themselves. What does it mean to work? What does it mean to not work? What is rest? What is restful to you? 
but man had to come in and put himself in charge. Man had to make himself the rest police. And man had to decide what, what you're allowed and not allowed to do on your day of rest. That is religion. And that is spiritual abuse. Anytime man gives himself the authority to tell you what God does and does not want from you. Okay. Jesus did say, love your neighbor as yourself. No problem with a man saying, um, you know, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. That's fine. But what happens is man comes in and this is like the big, um, conflict that I got into on Twitter is somebody came along and said, that's not of Jesus. Okay. Or if someone were to say, that's not loving, that's not your right to decide. So there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Cause Jesus did say that. What nobody gets to decide, however, is what does it look like to love your neighbor? Because no one else is going to pay the consequences for your decisions, but you. And this is the big problem with power and control. And that is, that is the, the root essence of spiritual abuse. That is what it always comes down to. And that's, that's the root essence of all kinds of abuse is that it's all about power and control. I have the right to decide for myself. Um, Every day I get 24 hours in a day. I have a certain number of obligations that I need to meet. I have bills that I have to pay every month. I have to eat every day. Um, It's healthy if I get some exercise every day. So it's my response. It's not just my right. It's my responsibility to make decisions every single day for my life about what do I need to do with my time. And even more importantly, it also is important for me to be able to um, evaluate, you know, what do, uh, how do I want to invest my time? Remember, anything that you spend your time on is an investment. And you reap what you sow. And so, how you spend your time is how is literally how you are investing your life energy. And so if you make good choices, you will most likely reap good fruit. If you make poor choices, you will reap bad fruit. That's how that works. Um, so it's not just your right, it's your responsibility to decide how you are spending your time because how you spend your time is how you are investing your time and what hap- what you there's there's all kinds of like long-term ramifications of your choices and this is why it is so important that you need to be in charge and in control of making your own decisions because you are the person that will pay the price for them But what happens is there's so many people. It's like an epidemic of people that need to tell you what to do. They have to tell you how to live your life. And it's not their right. 
But what they'll do is they'll always try and find a way of backing up or adding extra weight to their opinion. I've talked before about credentialing. Another way that people do this is they credential. There's enough, there's two kinds of credentialing. And once again, it comes down to power and control. There's nothing wrong with credentialing in the sense of saying, um, this is my background or this is my history or this is my education. This is why I feel qualified to talk about this. Okay. Nothing wrong with that. That's actually really valid, really important. But it, but there's no amount of credentials in the world that can or should require you to listen to me or to do what I say or do what I tell you. Okay. Even your, your body is your body. And this is a, a thing that we're experiencing of a lot right now, right? Your body is your body. The, the choices and the decisions that you make are going to have an impact on your body, right? But we go to a doctor and what happens? The doctor's like, well, I recommend this or I recommend that, which is fine. But there's a lot of people that have spent their entire lives living in their, their own body. And so sometimes you go to a doctor and a doctor says, I need you to do this or I need you to do that or this is my opinion or I need you to take this pill. And, you know, maybe you've already taken that pill or maybe you've taken something similar or just you've done your own research, you have done your own study and you just know that's not actually the problem. We're not getting to the problem or, you know, they'll they'll chalk it up to something very simple and maybe you've had a condition for long enough that you know it's not that very simple thing that they keep trying to tell you just know and or maybe you don't you just think it is bottom line is one way or the other the doctor is not going to pay the consequences of your decisions you are and so ultimately it is still your right to say no doctor I don't agree with you but what happens is because America is America I don't know how we got the. I don't know if it's the same in other countries or not but what will happen in America is you will get all kinds of pushback from that doctor because that doctor is going to believe that his credentials outweigh your own uh, lifetime of living in your own body. Um, And we get this all the time. It's not just from doctors. We get it from pastors. We get it from friends. We get it from our parents. There are all kinds of people in our life that believe that for whatever reason, because of their credentials, because of their title, because of their stature, whatever the reasons, they feel like they have the right to tell us what to do and we have to do it. When you are a child, that is actually true. And the reason it's true when you're a child is uh, your parents pay all the bills. Your parents um, put that roof over your head and put the food on the table and they pay all of the bills and they take responsibility for you. Actions have consequences. All actions have consequences. And sometimes we have to pay consequences for decisions that we had nothing to do with. That's going to happen. But the flip side of that is you have to take responsibility for your choices because you are the person that will pay the consequences of your choices. The pastor across the country telling you that if you really love your gay neighbors, you will treat them abominably does not actually have to live next to your neighbors. 
that pastor across the country is not going to pay the consequences for the choices that they are telling you to make. And if you listen to that pastor and if you treat your gay neighbors abominably, there will be a very high price to pay for that and you will be the one to pay it, not the pastor across the country. And this is why it is so important to learn to identify when is someone simply giving me a good tenet to live by? Like, love your neighbor. It's, it's up to you to decide, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do I do that best? It's not up to some pastor across the country. It's not even up to anyone in your church to decide, what does it look like to love your neighbor? These are decisions that we have to make on our own, and yet, the thing that, that really kind of boggles my mind is that I don't have a personal relationship with most of the people on Twitter. And yet it is absolutely crazy to me how many people will demand that you do what they tell you to do. Like, it is crazy to me the amount of authority people believe that they have the right to have. And I think that this is coming from our churches. Our churches, pastors, are giving themselves a level of authority that they absolutely have no right to have. And then what happens is that everyone in the church also believes that they are entitled to have a level of authority that they are not entitled to. There is no one that is paying my bills. There is no one in my life right now that is going to pay the consequences for my decisions but me, which means that no one has the right to tell me what decisions I should and should not be making. And they absolutely do not have the right to tell me what God wants me to do. They don't get to say, oh, that's not of Jesus, or that's not of God, or that's not loving. That's not your right to decide. My decisions, my actions, my actions will have consequences. And therefore, it is my right to decide what I should and should not be doing. It is my right to decide what does it look like to love my neighbor and what does it not look like to love my neighbor. So to me, the very basic root of spiritual abuse, the kernel of spiritual abuse is any time someone tries to use the name of God, the name of Jesus, any kind of leverage to give their opinion of what you should do or not do or give their judgment of you more weight by using the name of God or the name of Jesus. It doesn't need to be there. It's fine for me to say, I don't think that's very loving. It's fine to say, I don't think 
that's what it means to love your neighbor. That's fine. I have an opinion. You have an opinion. We all have an opinion. All opinions are equal. And that's what some people can't handle. They need their opinion to carry more weight. And so what they do is they try to add additional weight to their opinion by tacking Jesus on as a cosigner. They're saying, it's not just me that feels this way. This is how Jesus feels. This is what God wants. It's not just me that wants this from you. God wants this from you. That's not their right to decide. It is my right to decide. What does God want me to do? How does God want me to live my life? That is my right. That is not anyone else's right to decide. But it is all about power and control. This is why spiritual abuse happens is because it's about controlling the behavior of someone else. It's saying you need to do this because I have decided that it is God's will that for you to do that. That's control. There's nothing wrong with saying I think this is something that God is leading me to do. That's perfectly acceptable because you will pay the consequences for your decision. The reason no one else has the right to tell me what God does or does not want me to do is because the only person that will pay the consequences for my actions is me. Obviously, there's some um, situations in which that's not true. If you're married, there's a very good chance that uh, your spouse might pay consequences for your actions, which is why it is a really good idea to make decisions together. However many people are going to be um, affected by your decisions is how many people should be involved in decision making. I live alone. I'm single. So there really aren't very many, if any, other people that are going to be affected by my daily decision making, which means I don't have to consult anybody, which also means that there's literally no one that has the right to tell me what to do. I'm not under anyone's authority, but boy, are there a lot of people on Twitter that seem to feel that somehow I should be under their authority. And I'm not. So to me, that is the nature or the root essence of spiritual abuse. And I think one of the big reasons that when I called this out on Twitter, um, we love talking about institutional abuse, right? We love talking about these big, complex systems. We can explore them for days and without ever feeling any sense of personal responsibility, which is why we love talking about institutional abuse. Or at the very least, we talk about leadership, right? Um, spiritual abuse is the pastor's fault, something pastors do. We're comfortable with that. Uh, at least people who aren't pastors are very comfortable with talking about leadership or spiritual abuse as it relates to a pastor, what we don't like, what we resent, what we'll always fight against is any definition that actually turns a microscope or a mirror on our own actions. But the thing you also always have to remember is a church is a group 
of people and institution. There's really no such thing as an institution. An institution is simply a group of people. So if it's an institutional problem, it is a people problem. And an institution is not just the leaders. Now, what is true is that most people are going to pick up their behavioral cues from leaders. And so the problem is that if you have spent many years in a toxic environment, it is almost a guarantee that you have picked up toxic behaviors. And this is why we don't like this definition of spiritual abuse that narrows it all the way down to our individual behaviors. We don't want to look at us. We want to point fingers at the leaders and the institutions and the ways in which they are guilty, not us. But the truth is, if we actually want to see change in our institutions, it is going to have to happen at a personal level. We are all individually going to have to examine how do I or did I contribute to this problem? One of the things that I am very concerned about is we have these great big toxic institutions. I think that by far the majority of megachurches are toxic. I I know that there's a lot of people that want to disagree, but I just, I don't know that I believe that a megachurch can be healthy. Um, I think the whole reason that megachurches exist in the first place, how they were built, pretty much guarantees that they're going to be toxic. The fact that they exist is, is, is in my opinion, a toxin. And they're filled with toxic behaviors. And what's happening is there's so many people that are starting to recognize and see how toxic these megachurches are. And they're flooding out of the megachurches. But the problem is they're recognizing that the churches are toxic, but they're not recognizing that how many toxic behaviors they developed inside of those megachurches. So so what's happening is you have millions of toxic people that are flooding out of these churches thinking that the solution is they just need to find a different church. And I do believe that all throughout America, there are still small, healthy churches. But I think one of the critical components of that, and it it, it doesn't mean that a small church is automatically going to be healthy. A small church can be just as toxic as a big church. But I think that A small church, just based on the nature of being a smaller community in and of itself, stands a far greater chance of being a healthy community. And so my concern is you get all of these millions of people that are flooding out of these great big giant toxic megachurches that still have their their same toxic behaviors. They still have the same need for control that they learned in the megachurches, right? Be- because the only reason that megachurches can can become megachurches in the first place is they demand homogenization, which is another word for colonization. They gain their size or their mass 
by colonization. It's exactly what Mark Batterson did in Washington, D.C. It's a toxic behavior. And so people that became a part of these churches or, you know, spent years in these churches, they were assimilated. And the worst part is you develop those same behaviors of assimilation. It means that you no longer have the ability to allow other people to simply hold a different opinion. You have to assimilate them. It is, it is critically important that they agree with you and you will fight to the death. You will be incapable of simply allowing someone to hold a different opinion. And the worst part is you will claim the name of Jesus. You will say, it's not just me. Jesus agrees with me. That's how you assimilate people in the first place is you claim the name of Jesus. You say, it's not just me. This isn't just my opinion. This is what Jesus thinks. This is what God wants. It is a toxic behavior. It is the smallest particle of spiritual abuse. Actually, it's like the, it's like the atom. There might be a smaller particle. I don't know. I would say it is currently the smallest known particle of spiritual abuse. It may go even deeper than that. Um, But the bottom line is we all have the right to decide for ourselves what it means to be a Christian, what it means to love your neighbor, uh, what it means to forgive. Um, and, And certainly we should be listening to other people's opinions about what those things mean. But at the end of the day, we have to make our own decisions. And we are not obligated to agree with other people about what they think those things mean. And in mega churches, that's not acceptable. Everyone has to agree. That's the only way that you can uh, maintain anything resembling peace in a church that has a thousand, two thousand, three thousand people in it. You have to agree on everything because there is no room for conflict. You cannot have conflict. If you have 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 people that you're all managing to sort of keep on the same page, the only way you do that, the only way you can continue that is everyone has to agree on everything. Even if you don't actually agree, you have to at least express agreement. You you cannot express disagreement. You cannot verbally say out loud, I disagree with that. Everyone has to be kept in lockstep. It is the only way to maintain order in an organization of that size. There is no room for chaos, which means there is no room for disagreement. And again, I have huge concerns by how many people are leaving these giant toxic organizations and not taking the time to examine their own toxicity before deciding to just head right into a smaller church or organization. Um, I have a lot of concerns for the future health of smaller organizations that have actually managed to maintain some level of health 
um, throughout rampant evangelicalism. Um, so that is spiritual abuse, or at least my opinions about spiritual abuse. Um, by the time I put this podcast out, I'm hoping that, um, episode one of Yellowstone will be also out and available. If not, that is only going to be available to my Patreon supporters and my, um, Substack subscribers. So if you're interested in the series about the television show Yellowstone and how it relates to the American church, you can, um, sign up. Uh, get a subscription through Substack, or you can support me on Patreon. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, it's a it's it's like the wild wild west on Twitter. I piss a lot of people off, so that might be kind of entertaining. But that's uh, Robin underscore thinks. That's at Robin thinks. I'm also on Instagram. Also, um, if you if you get any benefit out of this podcast at all, please, please, please go to um, iTunes. Please uh, give it a star rating. And if you could give it a, a review, that would be fantastic. I would really appreciate that. That would help me out a lot to just, um, you know, kind of get the word out about my podcast. It's still a pretty new podcast. Um, I, I think I'm only at about less than six months now. Um, so still just trying to get the word out and um, build up a following and subscriber base. So I appreciate you listening and I will see you next week. <laughs>